blue house on the edge of the cliff. Uh, that's my grandparents' house. That's where I grew up in. On this episode of Warm Regards, we hear about life on the front lines of climate change. When I walk into town, I see these smiling, happy uh, faces that I grew up with. I see kids playing around outside uh, on the island. You know, past their curfew, I see kids playing out still. You know, it's the safe environment. The rest of the story and more coming up right now. Hi everyone, and welcome to Warm Regards, a dialogue between scientists, journalists, and folks on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine, and I'm joined as always by Eric Holthouse, meteorologist and contributing writer at Grist, and Andy Rifkin, who fights the good fight at ProPublica. All right, so how's the news this week, guys? Well, um, <laughs> to be honest, I just finished writing a, a little post on this new volcano chain that was discovered in Antarctica that um, is pretty terrifying. Um, <laughs> like, there's this feedback loop that could start between melting ice and that could make the volcanoes more active. And then, yeah, there's, it's just like there's no break in, in reporting this stuff. Yeah, so that's that answers my question about like why do we have to care about that way here, you know, and wherever we are. Um, and for those listening at home uh, who are wondering how ice and volcanoes interact, just remember that ice is super heavy and it pushes on the crust, and all the action in volcanoes is going on under the crust. So um, yeah, so that sounds like a fun time. <laughs> and of course, there's a volcano that's just a perpetual eruption in Washington. <laughs> It just keeps Sorry. on fl flowing out of with magma and all kinds of weird stuff. And uh, Eric and I both um, did pieces on this um, latest climate science assessment that's working its way through the climate bureaucracy and has to kind of go through um, the Trump filter um, before it comes out. Uh, and there's various, various even legal theories about what they can and can't do. But um, it seems to me, uh, the piece I did, I talked to Steve Coonan, who was the guy who came up with the uh, idea of red teams and blue teams going at climate science. <laughs> and he, he's now a very senior guy at NYU, and, and he had a big position under Obama in uh, the Energy Department. He was the uh, Undersecretary for Science at the Energy Department. So, like, and he's this brilliant physicist, et cetera, et cetera. So, and he's been in touch with Pruitt and, you know, the EPA administrator and with Rick Perry and... Um, my guess is that that red team, red teaming will happen with this report, um, given what I was hearing. Oh, that'll be fun. Mm. <laughs> 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 I mean, John Holdren, uh, the, the ex, uh, the Obama's science advisor, did a piece um, calling it all, you know, it's basically like a kangaroo court. And there's just no way. Uh, when I talked to Coonan, uh, he said he will only play along if it's... Um, not he says the thing that doesn't need to happen is is a kind of revetting of peer-reviewed science he's more concerned with things like um summary statements and reports and stuff and he wouldn't do it if it, he did, if it didn't have integrity and transparency and on twitter just a little while ago i posted a poll kind of saying now who thinks it's possible to have under this trump administration any kind of 
sort of debate style exercise on climate change that would be transparent and have integrity. Uh, I didn't check the last count was like 92% said no, <laughs> there's no way. Well, I mean, this is, this is just like, it, it's like taking the classic troll tactics and, and just taking them to 11 in terms of they're, they're, they're now not just coming out of random people with like with blogger accounts. They are now happening at the sort of highest administrative levels at which these you know, the decisions get made about the future of, of science and policy, right? I mean, the, the fact that, I mean, there's, there's just the, the classic tactic of, oh, well, we, you know, we just need, we're going to, we're going to undermine peer-reviewed science by acting like peer review doesn't actually happen. You know, that, that this idea of consensus is therefore some sort of indication of, um, of misconduct, you know, that we're, it's just sort of a, like an old boys club where we all just agree with each other, pat each other on the backs and, you know, put out another paper. Like that is not how science happens. And, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, but just the, any, anybody who's ever been involved in, I mean, I, I invite you around Christmas time this year to come to my house when I get my NSF grant rejections and we can go through the, like the reviews together. Um, maybe I will read them out loud on, on, on the podcast. I mean, just to give you a sense of like, just how much disagreement there is among our community. And this idea that somehow we need to like fix peer review um, with, a, with essentially peer review, like it, yeah. they're, they're acting like we're not already doing it is what I'm trying to say. I know. Well, stay tuned. Anyway, that's what I think of that. Well, I'm excited for our show today. Um, we have a pretty cool guest, literally. literally. <laughs> <laughs> Echo. Yeah, I I am as well, actually. Um, for for a number of reasons, um, and one of those is that you know when we set out to do this show, we really wanted to create a space for the hard conversations about climate change, and I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. But it's really easy to get bogged down in the details of science and policy and forget that there's more to the story than ice cores and, and volcanoes and cap and trade policies. Um, and that really behind every climate story that we talk about, there are people. And I'm talking about real people with heartbeats. I'm not just talking about scientists and reporters or politicians and policy wonks. But I'm talking about the people who are living with the decisions that we make and the outcome of our science, because those decisions are about something that is literally taking place in their backyards. And I think those stories aren't getting told enough. Maybe you have a personal climate change story, a fishing spot that just isn't the same as it was when you were a kid, or a tree in your front yard that blooms earlier than it did when you first moved in. Or maybe your story is about fire or flood or a family farm lost to drought. By the numbers, though, that's not likely. The polls say that most of us are concerned about climate change, but it's not the most important thing on our minds. Maybe we're not seeing it firsthand yet ourselves, even though we encounter it in the news more and more. Maybe for you, climate change just doesn't feel that real yet. So today's guest grew up on the literal front lines of climate change and has been among the first to experience firsthand just what a warming planet means. Esau Sinuk is uh, Arctic Youth Ambassador from Shishmaref, Alaska, a small Inupiaq community on a barrier island that for the last 50 years has been falling into the sea. Esau, we are so glad to have you with us on the show today. Thank you for having me today. So Shishmaref has basically been experiencing climate change longer than 
anybody's really even been talking about it in the scientific community or in the press. What has been your personal experience of climate change? Is this something you've just always grown up with? You know, my lifetime of 19 years has, we've been feeling the effects of climate change long before I was born. When I was born in 1997, uh, that was when we started relocating uh, 19 houses from one side of the island to the other because the island where the land where the houses were sitting on was eroding away because of the storm surges and we lost two houses from uh, that storm surge back in 1997. Uh, one was my uh, grandparents' house and the other was a local resident and ever since then we've been losing about uh, three to four meters of land each year from storm surges and climate change and all caused by climate change so we've been feeling the effects of climate change since the 1950s wow so in in 2001 i was reading that your community voted to to leave but that hasn't happened yet um, can you talk about that i mean is is everyone in your community on board with leaving? Are there disagreements? And, and why, um, you know, that was like 16 years ago. Why, why hasn't that happened? You know, since uh, we, we've voted to relocate three times already back in 1973, back in 2001, and the most recent was this past August in 2016. And mm. it just changes because of the current administration, because of uh, our current leaders in our state and uh, trying to look for available funding and resources to relocate. So Shishmaraf voted, uh, the residents in Shishmaraf voted to relocate three times and each and every time it's in favor of relocation. And now in 2016 and 2017, we changed the name of relocation in our uh, papers and our reports and all that to the Shishmaraf expansion plan because if we put relocation in any of our funding requests or anything like that we will not get funding uh, wow. for example if we want to expand the school or improve our uh, laundromat uh, and we have relocation in the paperwork uh, the government and the federal uh, government here in Alaska they will not give us funding if we put relocation because they think that it's just going to go to waste. Wow. Well, how much money are we talking about here? Is it this is something that's clearly beyond the budget and responsibility of people living there. I mean, this is not your guys's fault. You didn't cause this problem. You know, back in 2004, I believe the uh, US Army Corps of Engineers estimated a cost of 180 million dollars to relocate the 600 residents living in Shishmaraf and now it's 2017, uh, 13 years later and now we are looking more towards higher up to $300 million. So mm. each and every year just costs more and more. But still, that's like one third the cost of, of a baseball stadium in New York or something <laughs> like that. Like, I mean, and those are publicly funded often. So it's like, um, it seems like we don't have our priorities straight here, that we're not paying for the future of an American community that's already feeling the effects. You know, with 
300 million dollars that's like a cost of making a, a high budget hollywood movie so um, yeah. if we just ask johnny depp or leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> to uh ask to pay for our uh, relocation that would be greatly appreciated well, leo if you're listening we know where to send the check <laughs> so um recently last week uh the village of new talk just recently uh, is finally beginning to take shape of relocating uh Newtalk is also a community affected by climate change here in Alaska, and that's a big step in our uh, current state and our communities affected by climate change. So uh, Newtalk is one of the land uh, leading uh, communities that are actually looking to relocate and are in progress of relocating. Um, hmm. it, it, was that also with the help of of um, the uh, the government or how did they get that project going? So I just learned about this yesterday and I'm still looking into it on how they got the funding for it. So I'm going to look into it more and see how Shishmaraf can do the same. Well, yeah, it's like you're you're learning in real time just as the impacts are hitting in real time. It's 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 I can't imagine um you know, feeling that pressure for the future of your community and for your people to to take start taking that responsibility to to look at such a big scale of of a project. And one uh, one thing that I think people um, who haven't been in the Arctic uh, or haven't experienced life um, in an indigenous community, one thing they they may not appreciate is this isn't happening in isolation. That there's a lot of other challenges communities like yours face as well. Uh, can you say that again, please? Yeah, uh, uh, climate change is um, not hardly the first um, issue you've had to deal with, and uh, I've spent time in um, uh, British Columbia with um, uh, some of the. Um, in indigenous populations there too and and I've been in um, a couple parts of the Arctic and met with um, communities where there's so, so many other things that are already challenging like uh, everything from alcohol to uh, tensions over um, uh, new sources of income you know there's people who are all for fossil fuel extraction and those who are for d traditional lives so this isn't like a one thing that makes us uh, think it seems like it makes it hard is that it's not uh, not the only thing you're dealing with yeah, definitely. Uh, when you look at news of Shishmaraf and these other communities are all across Alaska, all you see is mostly about climate change in it. And the effects we're feeling is not only climate change, it's also alcohol and substance abuse. It, it's domestic right. abuse, it's child and uh, woman abuse in these villages, in these communities that are uh, feeling the effects of not only climate change, but also these other issues, you know, and also mental and health uh, issues and also families that are having to live off of food stamps because uh, one parent or even none of the parents are working. So there's a lot of issues that are being felt and being seen every single day uh, when I go back to Shishmaraf, not only climate change, but also other issues that affect our daily lives. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's interesting because you, I mean, thinking about what, what Andy just said and, and Esau, what you just said, 
you you've basically I mean I've I've heard of Shishmara for years. Um, you know, different scientists who have gone up there to do research or people who have done stories about it. Um, and you you're basically living in a community that's a poster child for climate change. I mean, is that is that has that been weird for you to have to to grow up in this small place so so remote where there's so much global focus on your village? I mean, do you um, what was that like growing up? You know, personally, when I was growing up, I really haven't thought of it uh, because you grew up in that setting, you grew up in that society, you grew up with these people and the environment that is changing and you think that, oh yeah, the storm that comes every September, October, yeah, that that's normal to me because I've been growing up with it. But once I gotten older and starting to realize, oh, this isn't normal, this is caused by climate change, by global warming, mm-hmm. we really haven't been having this problem uh, when my parents and even my grandparents was growing up. So. Uh, when I gotten older, I realized, oh, this type of activity in our community is not normal. This is caused by climate change. So I sought out to do something about it. And uh, through the Arctic Youth Ambassador Program, I was able to uh, travel worldwide. Um, through Sierra Club, I traveled to COP21. Uh, and with the Ambassador Program, I traveled all over the United States talking about Shishmaf and my story and what I see and what my community sees and the story that needs to be told. So when when you were at Aspen, you told this really powerful story about the first time you really saw climate change. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah. A few weeks ago, I was in Aspen, Colorado for the Aspen Ideas Festival. And this story, the story that I told is a story that I keep telling over and over again everywhere I go. And the story is that um, my uncle, who I grew up with, thinking that he was my father figure and someone I can look up to and someone who I can go and talk to and also go hunting and fishing with, uh, uh, and also growing up with him, he and my grandparents, I used to travel a lot with my grandparents to go see my uncle and his auntie and uh, son back in Fairbanks, Alaska, because he went there to go work during the uh, working season and came back to Shishmaf to go back hunting. So I would always be around my uncle when I was growing up, up until 10 years old is uh, back in 2007, uh, June 2nd, to be exact, is when my uncle uh, fell through the ice when he was out hunting with some of his friends uh, for duck and geese hunting and on their way back he fell through the ice and lost his life on that day and he fell through the ice where it would usually be thick enough to safely travel on but uh, for some reason it wasn't uh, thick enough and he fell through and he drowned and he passed away on that day and each and every day that goes by since then, I haven't stopped thinking about him. He's always on my mind, and he's the biggest reason why I do this work. Um, I, I think that you know, when when most of us think about climate change, we're we we don't we don't really think about stories like yours, and so I'm I'm so sorry that that happened to your family, and I'm I'm really grateful that you 
have decided to share that with others because I think that I think that those stories need to be told more because I think we will unfortunately have more of those stories, you know, going forward in the next century. What what do people say? Um what what is the most common response that you get um when when you share that uh that story with people? You know, just like uh Jacqueline said uh, a lot of people say sorry to hear that about you and your family sorry that you had to go through this and um, uh, yeah some of them would say thank you for the work that you've been doing and thank you for sharing your story and sharing that story with us today and that you uh, have a unique story that needs to be told so um, a lot of people say that to me after I give give that story and tell it to them yeah, and you said that that keeps that helps keeping keep you going to do this work. Um, and you've you've gone now so many places. Um, and it it it's 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 almost impossible for me to think of um, of how that would feel to keep um, telling that story over and over. Yeah, um, to me, it's a story that needs to be told, so uh, I keep telling it over and over again because I think that it's needed and that someone needs to tell it, and having a unique story like that and thinking if other people across not only Alaska but also the world tell stories like this that they're being affected by not only climate change but also the other issues that they see telling their unique personal life story or something that happened to them about these issues is very powerful and i think that if people come up and actually tell these stories that uh, there'll be actual change in this world in this environmental field in this uh, crisis that we see in climate change so uh, telling personal stories is one way one powerful way to uh, get other people lifted up and uh, to be more involved in their community. Do you do you ever do you ever run across people who who are you know climate skeptics or people who don't believe it's happening or people who don't believe that it's um, you know that it's our fault or I mean do you is it hard I mean it's, I mean it's hard for me as a as an educator and a scientist where this is all just, you know, it's, it's kind of, like I said, it's like an intellectual exercise, right? I see, I see the data, um, but I don't have, like those, those stories, you know, I don't, I don't have that experience. I can't even imagine what it's like to be able to say, like, look, it's not just, it's not just numbers, it's human beings. I mean, it, is it hard for you to, to, to talk to those people or do you, um, do you just ra- sort of rarely come across them? You know, I, um, come across climate skeptics even here in Alaska and uh, some of those experiences are with like Lyft or Uber drivers with my cab drivers <laughs> with people who I uh, see on the street and uh, you know there's a lot of people even here in Alaska that deny climate change and, uh, to me I love to talk to people like that because they need to be educated not only about that it's numbers or if that it's just pictures of you know glaciers being receding but it's also stories and uh, myself I'm affected by climate change and 
uh, I was actually gonna go to Shishmaraf, uh on this past Sunday with uh, CNN and bringing along a climate skeptic uh, Utah co-worker uh, but wow. seeing that uh, we had some issues with that uh, itinerary and some of the other stuff that I should not talk about we decided not to go at this time but probably later in the future so uh, yeah I personally invite anyone who would love to see climate change firsthand and see that climate change is real is to go to Shishmaraf and I would love to go with them someday so showing them around Shishmaraf and telling my story and uh, letting them talk to the elders of the community that they've seen these uh, changes happen in their lifetime so I would love to invite anyone who is a climate skeptic to go to Shishmaraf, Alaska you, you brought up something um, important um, and I wonder how you deal with it. I've been to um, a couple of meetings in the Arctic where Arctic nations have gotten together to talk about policy and, and the like. And m for the most part, they're kind of celebratory. It's really weird. And uh, this is the, uh, you know, Norway. And uh, one was in Iceland, which wants to be the new shipping, you know, center for and 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 obviously in in siberia you know the times when i was at the times we did this package in 2005 on the opening of the arctic and the correspondent who went to siberia found all these people who were kind of like you know looking at the upside and i don't know whether and, and even uh, the inuit um the inter uh, oh god what's it called the council you, you know the, the name of it the, the inuit circumpolar council yeah, you know, it's some of these these places. It's not. I think the human issues tend to get downplayed. I don't know whether you have a feeling of frustration just even within those circles sometimes. You know, um, the uh, chairmanship of the Arctic Council, because my ambassador program, we work closely with the Arctic Council. It's not part of the Arctic Council, but we. Uh, work closely with them we travel to the meetings that they hell uh hold and this past may is the uh was the commencement of the u.s chairmanship of the Ar arctic council handing chairmanship to finland and we were able to uh watch the meeting in uh the carlson center in fairbanks alaska and uh each and every single person because u.s secretary uh Rex Tillerson was there, and uh, every person that talked and went, it went in around in the circle. And each and every single person there, the diplomat or the prime minister or the leader of that country or organization, they talked about climate change and how it affects their community and their country. And seeing that they all uh, talked about it in front of Rex Tillerson, who's the former CEO of ExxonMobil and now the Secretary mm -hmm. of State. And now having these big countries, the Arctic countries and organizations talking about climate change in, in their country in front of Rex Tillerson, uh, mm -hmm. it was very powerful for me to uh, see that. Uh, and that was something really uh, life-changing for me because these countries talked about climate change and their communities in their country to the former CEO of ExxonMobil. Mm -hmm. That's really and, interesting. 
did it get pretty tense at times or were, were you what, what were you thinking when you were hearing this going back and forth you know uh so we volunteered all 22 of us ambassadors volunteered to uh be part of the arctic council meeting not to be attending but to you know be like the people who pass the people who are required to be in part of that meeting so that some people who aren't uh eligible to be part of that meeting we were those people who told them no you can't stay and some of us were able to listen in and to see the meeting actually happen and to me i really wanted to jump up and smile and you know <laughs> be happy that these countries are talking about climate change with Rex Tillerson, who denies climate change and who knew that his former company knew about climate change ever since the 1970s, but, but been quiet about it. So it was really cool to see. Um, and we had to leave before Rex Tillerson had to speak. So I didn't know what his reaction was to all this. Um, so it was pretty cool to me to see that. So what was, um, what was it like going to COP21? I mean, do you feel like our, our world leaders are paying attention? You know, when I first, that was the second time I actually left Alaska. The first time was in DC for a Sierra Club training. Um, and that was the first time for me out of the state of Alaska and uh, going to COP21 in Paris, France was the second time leaving Alaska and the first time leaving the country. So it was a very big culture shock for me coming from a community of 600 people to being wow. in a city of 2 million people. So going from 600 to 2 million, you know, it's very big culture shock for me, you know, seeing all these buildings uh, mashed up together close closely and seeing all these people walking in the streets, you know, it was very overwhelming for me for the first day or two, but I got used to it over time. And just being in that space in COP21 really lifted my spirit and my hopes for the future because it showed me that other people across the world care about the environment and there's other people that are allies to communities like Shishmaraf and Nutak and Kivalina and Utkalgovic, formerly known as Barrow. You know, these communities, not uh, where they come from, that they do support us and it's very powerful it was very powerful to me seeing that other people cared about the environment and about the arctic so it was really uplifting for me to be in cop 21 and you know i think it was uh really cool to see that president barack obama uh traveled to paris for a day or two to uh attend one of the meetings and speak and that was really cool to see that someone who's as powerful as him uh went to COP21 to uh, be part of that meeting that these world leaders across the world are attending and listening and uh, going to these meetings is very uh, powerful and that, uh, you know, right now with our current administration, seeing that all these uh, mayors and all these leaders and all these diplomats and uh, foreign leaders across the world are speaking up and taking action about climate change that's something very powerful in our current administration that we have Isa, do you have any questions for us too like you can if there's anything you'd like to ask us uh feel free if not i have many many more questions for you 
You know, uh, Eric called me yesterday, and the first thing I uh, thought of is, how did he get my number? So, <laughs> um, to be on the show. So, uh, I was wondering, how long has Warm Regards been uh, up and running? Uh, Eric, you want to take that one? Oh, we started about a year ago. So, um, we all just sort of found each other on the internet and <laughs> asked to, um, asked to, um, you know, start recording this together because I think we had a similar vision of, of, um, telling the stories that weren't being told, um, from a perspective that isn't common. So I think this, uh, this, this episode with you, Esau, is really sort of like um, what we meant for this show to be like, I think. So um, I'm really happy that you were able to join us. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, for me, you know, as a as a scientist, um, it's just been really interesting to, to follow the research on what makes really effective science communication and how you get people to change their minds about their, about science or about their activities. Like, you know, obviously we want to talk to people and convince them that climate change is happening and to support policies that will, you know, mitigate the risks of climate change or forestall, you know, really catastrophic climate change in the future, right? We want all of those things to happen. And in, in the scientific community, we've really come to this, uh, to, to understand that um, there's something called the deficit model. I'm not sure you're, if you're familiar with this, but it's, it's used in education and, and science communication discussions where there's this idea that if people aren't, aren't making the choices that you think they should make, um, or they don't believe something that you think they should believe, like climate change is real and it's caused by humans, then all you have to, they, they basically have a deficit of knowledge or a deficit of information. And if you just fill that deficit, if you fill that hole with more f- scientific facts or information, then, then you'll fix the problem and they will, they will change their behavior or they will think differently. And, you know, I'm an, as, a, as a scientist and an educator, I, I would like to think that that works, right? That all I have to do is just show people more graphs or show people more, um, you know, more data uh, about, you know, from ice cores or whatever, and, and then they'll change their minds. And it, it turns out there's this whole field of research on what makes effective science communication. And that deficit model is super flawed. And it turns out that giving people more information doesn't work, which is really hard. It's really hard when, you, when you're a teacher or when you're a journalist, for example. And it turns out the thing that does work is, um, is, is like building empathy and telling stories. And um, so when I, yeah, when I heard your story, Esau, it was, um, I was like, this is, you know, this is what's effective, right? Like telling, telling these personal stories, telling the human side. Um, and that's, you know, very much what, what I think I, what I was really inspired to do with these guys, with, with Eric and, and Andy for the show, um, you know, because we, you know, there are, there are lots of documentaries out there and they can show, you know, really great dramatic data and scenes. But I think it's the, I don't know, I think it's the, the human stories that, mm-hmm. that are going to make the big difference. So um, in that vein, um, I, I want to ask, I want to ask Esau one question and then um, maybe we could wrap up um, after that. Is it, yeah. Does that sound okay? Or in, unless you had some really pressing ones that you want to ask as well? I mean, I I think the one thing I wanted to ask was like, 
what's it like being a youth activist? Like, mm-hmm. do you ever wish you could have just been a kid? But I mean, mm-hmm. no, it sounds, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. What was it? What is it like being a youth activist? Are you ever just like, man, I, you know, I could be like hanging out. <laughs> I could hang out at the soda shop and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and like, like, like any of us have that life, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Do you, do you feel like, you know, you could be like playing video games or, you know, out hunting or something? And I mean, are you, do you feel like you've missed out on something by, by this, this calling? Is it hard being a youth activist? You know, uh, being a youth activist really opened the doors to me, uh, for me to be part of stuff and activities like this uh, podcast right now. And uh, I'm really grateful uh, and really thankful that I have these opportunities uh, given to me and open up for me. Um, you know, I, I didn't really think uh, what I would be doing now if I wasn't a youth activist. Um, I really... Uh, I'm grateful that I do advocate for my community, that I'm an ambassador for Shishmaraf, for the Arctic, for the state of Alaska, and that I got to meet the people that I met, that I met a lot of other youth across Alaska and across the world that are uh, talking about their issues and being an advocate for their community. You know, it really gave me hope seeing that there's other youth being involved in these types of uh, meetings and these types of activities and uh, being involved in the community. So uh, I don't think about what I would be doing now if I wasn't a youth activist. Yeah, it would be great if I could go back home and just go hunting and fishing. But back in my mind, I always know that it's always going to be there, that I always can go back to Shishmaraf and uh, mm-hmm. go back to hunting and fishing whenever I want. So uh, doing all this work right now is very important uh, that I think, and also completing my education up at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. So, um, Oh, great. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like you're just blowing that stereotype of, of you know, millennials <laughs> out, <laughs> right out of the water. Like, um, um, I think you guys are saving the world. <laughs> so... I took a month off of work here at Sierra Club to travel around the nation to speak and to be part of these events. And then I took a couple of weeks off uh, to relax and to wind down with my girlfriend up in Brevik Mission. And to me, it felt very weird because I'm used to always working and always doing this type of thing. So I'm very glad that uh, I'm back to, you know, my regular uh, schedule where I work from nine to five and being able to do this type of work because it uh that's just the person who i am mm-hmm. um so the question i wanted to ask is what is it like to live in Shishmarif? um what do you what do you do on a regular day and um what sort of um what, what do you see around you when you walk outside of your house so if you search uh, Shishmaraf, Alaska on Google, you'll see, you'll probably see a picture of a blue house on the edge of the cliff. Uh, that's my grandparents' house. That's where I grew up in. Uh, I've been living with my grandparents ever since I was about 10 or 11 years old. And that's where I grew up. And walking yeah. out of my grandparents' house, I see the uh 
dirt road i see people driving by with their four-wheelers uh atvs um <clears throat> and walking and i go down the street on to the new airport and i see the new playground i see uh kids and older uh youth playing basketball playing on the swings playing on the monkey bars uh, and it's all sand uh this past summer in 2016 Shishmaraf just got uh brand new uh paved roads so now when i walk out my doors i see uh paved uh roads uh that people drive on that people bike on uh, a lot of people ever since that road has been done constructing a lot of people have been going out biking even older people even uh, in their 20s and 30s and older people like that, they've been starting to go biking on that road. So it's pretty cool to see that Shishmaf has new paved uh, cement roads to uh, play on, to bike on, to drive on. So that's pretty cool to see. Um, and then when I walk into town, I see these smiling, happy uh, faces that I grew up with because uh, each and every single person that lives in Shishmaraf I grew up with there's a saying that goes it takes a village to raise a child and that was true with me so uh, I consider each and every single person living in Shishmaraf a family member uh, someone who I think that I can talk to and just have a meaningful conversation with and just uh, talk to them about anything I want to talk to them about so uh, friendly happy smiley faces everywhere I go I see kids playing around outside uh, on the island you know past their curfew I see kids playing out still you know it's the safe environment where uh, the parents don't have to worry about where their kids are uh, if they're out past curfew you know that they're safe and that their uh, kids are just being kids you know just playing around laughing doing all this stuff safely Sounds like a pretty great childhood. Yeah, it was pretty good. I got a lot of memories with my friends, too, uh, growing up as a child in Shishmara. Well. Is there, um, is there any other thing that you wanted to say? Um, we have... Um, uh, m most of the people that listen are climate scientists, climate activists, people that are really... Um, interested in 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 this um, work so um, is there anything that you wanted to say to them maybe um, as someone who's from Shishmaraf Alaska and Alaska and the Arctic in general I uh, want to thank you for listening and to being an advocate and an activist and someone who's stepping up in their community to uh, help and protect the environment. So I just want to say thank you and continue being that community leader in your community. That's great. That's yeah, I think I think, you know, we need we need those messages. And, you know, that, you know, just the I just feel very energized by your efforts. And some days I feel very tired lately and this conversation has has really helped so thank you so much and that's our show for this week i really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did please follow us on twitter at our warm regards and subscribe to our podcast 
on all of your favorite distributors. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Um, I think we're pretty much everywhere at this point. We also always love hearing from you. We take your suggestions for the show very seriously. So feel uh, free to reach out to us on Facebook or via email at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. And that's it. For Eric and Andy and our producers Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, I'm Jacqueline Gill. Be well, friends.